Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We celebrate the life and career of Roland Ratzenberger to tie in with the 25th anniversary of his tragic death. A quarter of a century ago, Roland Ratzenberger was killed during qualifying for the fateful 1994 San Marino Grand Prix. At the time, he was living his dream of racing in Formula One after beating incredible odds to get there, before it turned to tragedy when he crashed heavily at the Villeneuve right-hander. But his memory still burns brightly, and to mark his memory, we're looking back at the career of the popular Austrian. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and joining me is someone who knew Ratzenberger very well, having first met him when he was racing in Formula Ford in 1985, then covered his exploits at Le Mans in Japan and all too briefly in Formula One, Adam Cooper. Now, it must be very strange to think it's 25 years ago now. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? I mean, for me, that's uh, uh, pretty much half a lifetime. But still, um, in some ways, it seems like it was just yesterday. got so many good memories of Roland and the times I spent with him in Japan with all the other European drivers that were racing there. So many funny stories and so on. Well, Ratzenberger, of course, came from Salzburg in Austria. He didn't come from a racing family, but his interest was was peaked. Uh, he started racing in 1983 in Formula Ford, but he got his toe in the door working for Walter Lechner's racing team and then racing school. It was quite a common way for people to get into it to 
aspiring drivers to to work with teams. Now, he had to work very hard to get his way into racing. And th- this is an interview, a small excerpt from an interview you did some years ago, Adam, with with Walter Lechner, when he explains how uh, how, how this kid at the time, Ratzenberger, first got involved. So let's have a quick listen to that. Roland went to a technical high school, Salzburg, and uh, we actually had uh, at the very near where he actually was raised, born and raised, actually, we had our workshop which was a Formula Ford workshop, and as a kid, he just passed by, always, uh, he did a technical, uh, you know, high school, always passed by, and he just started to help, and then he just wanted, obviously, to become a race driver, and as I didn't have any funds, I told him, you know, the best way to get into motor racing is just get part of motor racing by starting as a mechanic. With us, he just started, you know, to, you know, sort of, to do a, you know, junior mechanic job, be at racing school. Uh, of, of course, his dream was always to get in a car. So he drove them around in the paddock and lost some corners sometimes, and repaired them again. Right from day number one, he was very focused. I told him, you know, like I had started my own career, you know, in the school, the, sooner or later, when you can prepare cars, you will find somebody who is, uh, has money but cannot do his own cars and then you look after his car and other people you do your car as well and that's how you're going to get your, your, your leg into racing. Well, of course, Adam, by the time you met Ratzenberger, he was making quite a name for himself in, in Formula Ford. So that was 1985. What did you make of him in those in those early days as a, as a man and a, and a driver? Because presumably you crossed paths with him a reasonable amount. Yeah, I mean, I started as a, a journalist with Autosport in that summer of 1985. And uh, at the time, I was covering a little bit of uh, world sports car racing and also a bit of uh, national racing in Britain, which mainly meant uh, things like Formula Ford, Formula Ford 2000. And it was such a strong and competitive scene at that time. I mean, just to give you an idea, one of the first uh, events I covered for the magazine, I went to a club meeting at Thruxton and there there was a minis and clubmans and special saloons. And the, the highlight was the SO Formula Ford race. And in the entry list that day, guys I met for the first time that day, people like Damon Hill, Mark Blundell, Johnny Herbert, Eddie Irvine, Bertrand Gasho, all uh, basically starting out their careers, all basically pretty much uh, my age. But I think I'd probably met Roland at the festival at the end of that year because he would have been racing in Europe mostly in 85. I think he came over to the festival and finished second to Johnny Herbert. But in 86, he did the full... Formula Ford season, the RAC Championship and the SO Championship. So I would have seen quite a lot of him there. I was covering a lot of the races and especially the festival at the end of the year, which obviously was a big highlight. This was at a time when the festival really was in its heyday, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. And the the incredible thing about it was Roland pretty much did it by himself. I mean, even in those days, there were professional teams and obviously you had the works Van Diemen, entries and so on and that year he'd been driving for a team called space racing um but they basically run out of money towards the end of the season and he was pretty much left on his own the team allowed him to keep the truck but he had to sort of pay for his own racing and was more or less his own mechanic i think he maybe had one guy helping him and he put all his focus on the festival at the end of the year um but the problem was he he couldn't afford to do the um, the other races. He couldn't afford to do testing. And the one thing that saved him was that he managed to get a contract with BMW for 87 for the World Touring Car Championship, which was quite an incredible step at the time, really. Um, but he hooked up with a guy called Burkhardt Hummel, 
who was an Austrian, um, or still is an Aust- Austrian, basically sponsor finder, a commercial guy. And he's, he's actually very heavily involved in Toro Rosso, even to this day, in terms of finding sponsors. Now he'd worked with Gerhard Berger and had basically got Berger into Formula One in 84 with ATS. So this was just, um, only a couple of years later that, uh, uh, Roland had basically tracked him down, introduced himself and said, can you help me? And Burkhardt Hummel was the guy that sort of made that introduction to BMW, told them there's this quick young guy, I think you should look at him. So just before the festival, he got himself a contract. So he knew that he was going to have a salary. For the first time ever, he'd be earning money from motor racing. He knew he'd have a salary from uh, January the 1st, uh, 87. And with that, he was able to sort of scrimp and save and borrow some money and uh, basically afford to do a bit of testing and get to the festival. Um, and then the last minute, the guys from Space Racing decided they wanted their truck back. So he was actually stuck at Brands Hatch with a car, and no, no truck and no tools. And he was saved by a guy called uh, Chris Weller, who ran a, a Class B Formula 3 team. Uh, he came along and helped out, brought some equipment and a truck, and uh, he basically helped, uh, helped Roland that weekend. And of course, it was the perfect weekend for him. He he won his heat, he won his quarterfinal, he won his semi-final, and then in the final, um, he was chased home by Farber and uh, Pete Rogers, who was another great young talent who um, who we lost far far too early. But basically, the festival it was a bit like winning Macau. It became later on. It was just a real marker in uh, someone's career. So, so many great drivers have won it. I mean, and Eddie Irvine just the following year. So at that point, um, he was on his way, basically. And of course, that was what he chose for his race of my life in autosport, which is a, when drivers choose their, their their greatest race. You did that piece uh, some, year, some years later. So just, just so important. And that, it's amazing to feel. I suppose this sort of thing sometimes does happen now and it seems more common, but to go from racing at that level, Formula Ford equivalent sort of now would be something like Formula 4, and to go straight from that into a, into a BMW deal and be racing in a world championship alongside some uh, some legendary names, astonishing really. Yeah, it was a big step and uh, I think one of his early races, his co-driver was Ivan Capelli, who'd um, already done a bit of Formula 1 at that stage. Um, but on the other hand, I mustn't forget, he was actually... This is one of the key things about him. He was actually much older than drivers are these days, or even what was the norm back then. He was 26 when he won the festival, so 26 when he went into that season with BMW. Although he, like people like Gilles Villeneuve before him, he nicked a couple of years on his CV. Uh, we always thought it'd be, <laughs> we always thought he was born in 1962, but it, it, we found out a lot later that he was born in 1960. So he was quite mature. He'd done four or five years of Formula Ford. He'd been working as a mechanic, been working at Walter's uh, racing school. He'd been working away at finding sponsors and, and marketing himself. He was uh, very much a grown-up going into that uh, World Touring Car Championship. And I think he did pretty well. If you look at the results, he had quite a few top six uh, places in um, what was a very, very competitive year for that that, that championship. Yeah, of course. And uh, the association with BMW seemed to continue because he did turn up in 88 in some British Touring Car Championship outings in a, in a BMW, of course, the World Championship 
after that one year existence uh, disappeared again for almost almost 20 years so I uh, wasn't able to continue, continue to race in that uh, I mean he he made his debut at Le Mans in, in 1989 raced a Volta Bruns team al- alongside Volta Lechner actually and uh, Mauricio Sanjo Sala who we went on to race against in in Japan but I, I guess the the thing that set him on the path to F1 was the decision to go and race in in Japan in in 1990, become part of the the, the European mob that was uh, that was racing out there. We had a great time in Japanese racing, and of course, you effectively followed Ratzenberger to to Japan to cover that that racing scene. Was it 91 you went over there? Uh, uh, 91 was when I made my first sort of exploratory trip, but he kind of lost his way or stalled a bit in Europe. In 87, he combined that World Touring Car Series with Formula 3 and 88, you combine British touring cars with Form- British Formula 3, but it just didn't really work out. He wasn't really in the right package at the right time, and it was a very, very competitive series. Then 89, he did British Formula 3000 and finished third in that, but he was he was doing all kinds of stuff. He even did some DTM races for Helmut Marco that have uh, long been forgotten. But I think the key was going to Le Mans in 89, with uh, Walter Brun, as you said, with uh, Lechner and uh, Maurizio Sala as his co-driver. And that really opened his eyes to to sports car racing and the, the big, powerful Group C cars. And it led to him making his first trip at the end of 89. He did a race for Toyota. And uh, I think he just liked the Japanese scene. They liked him. They realized he was a good driver, a hard worker. He was very respectful of the whole way things worked over there. And that led to um, permanent employment for 1990. He did sports cars and uh, Formula 3000. And I guess at that time, I was from the Autosport office. I was keeping a close eye on the Japanese scene. And I, I'd speak to Roland and got the other guys by phone or fax uh, after the races to find out what had got on. And middle of 91, I decided to sort of make a, uh, a visit to Japan to, to see what the scene was like there. So I went to a sports car race at Fuji. And then a Formula 3000 race the next weekend at Sugo. And that Formula 3000 race also happened to be the only one contested by a, a certain Michael Schumacher, which made, made it, um, uh, gave it a little bit of historical significance in retrospect. But yeah, I went to that, that race at Fuji. That uh, Sunday night was my, although I'd been to Japan many times and been to races, I hadn't actually spent really any time in Tokyo. But that Sunday night I went out with Roland and uh, Johnny Herbert, to- Thomas Danielson, I think Volker Weidler, several of the drivers took me out to some of the Tokyo night spots, which uh, proved to be a bit of an eye-opener. Gradually, they all gave up and went back to the, the hotel, and I was left with Roland in a very dodgy-looking bar at sort of six in the morning. And we left it when they were putting the tables, uh, the chairs on the table and walked back to the hotel, and it was daylight already. And on that, that trip back, between us, we decided that uh, I should come over and be the, the only European journalist covering the, the scene over there and keeping an eye on all those those European drivers and sending reports back to Europe. And it seemed like a, a good idea at the time. So, yeah, the next March, I, I went out there and I, I spent spent two years there. Well, I guess it had a, a pretty big impact on your professional and your, and your personal life. And this is why Ratzenberg is not just a, just a driver you covered, because he did you know, he was a friend and he did have kind of an impact on your, on your, the direction of your life, amazingly. Yeah, exactly. Because those two years, um, you know, were a great experience. And he was really good to me out there. The, the first race I covered at the beginning of 92, I couldn't afford a hotel. So I ended up sharing a room with him. And he was actually quite depressed that weekend because he 
failed to qualify for the Formula 3000 race um, because his car just just wasn't good enough. And then um, over my two years there, I spent a lot of time with him and, and the other guys like Eddie Irvine, Mick Salo, Eintel Frentz, and uh, Jack Villeneuve was there for a year in Formula 3. And then guys like Anthony Reid, who obviously went on to superstardom in the BTCC later on. And uh, yeah, Ronan was definitely one of my closest friends. Yeah, it always sounded like a fascinating time. I remember reading in the pages of Autosport as a as a young reader about uh, about goings on over there for, from yourself. So uh, yeah, even even to those of us a long way away, just following it, it seemed like a seemed like a, a, a great time. Well, let's hear from an interview you did a few years ago with with one of his rivals at that time, another another friend of yours, uh, Eddie Irvine, who obviously knew him uh, knew him well as a as a friend and a rival, and and here's him on. Roland Ratzenberger, how he was as a driver, his approach, just how, how good he was. He was as good as anybody that wasn't in Formula One, you know what I'm saying? I think Formula One guys are definitely the cream of the crop. He, he, he would have done a good job in Formula One, as he did a good job in any Formula any Formula ever raced, you know. Um, he was a bloody good driver, and he was very, very determined. And, and two, them two things are very important then you've got the guys that are super talented like the you know the Senna's the Hamilton's the Alonso's you know but there ain't many of them around um, um, and then you've got the next crowd which Ratsy would have been part of he was smart hard working and, and, and talented you know there was, there was I think he was older wasn't he he was a bit like me in that I was old uh, because I had got I had no money and I got stuck in the lower formulas and I think he was old because he got stuck, you know, he was even older than me because he started late and he got stuck in the lower formulas and he went to Japan, you know, so he was, he, okay, so he was 32 by the time he got into Formula 1, so that was, you know, most people are going out of Formula 1 at that stage. He worked hard for everything he got, you gotta give, you gotta give him that, and he would have done a good job in Formula 1 if he had got those, I, I have no doubt about that. Um, but, um, he, he, you know, he just got into the wrong car, didn't he? It's hard. It's hard when he loved Formula One. He was addicted to Formula One. Like, I, it was amazing how much he wanted that, you know, because he had a great career in Japan and he still kept pushing, pushing, pushing into Formula One, especially, you know, with me, Frenson and Salah all jumping across. It must have been tough for him, but at the same time, it was, it, it spurred him into, it encouraged him to, to keep pushing. Picking up on that, how did Ratzenberger get on in Japan? Obviously, they were major professional championships, Formula 3000, the, the sports car championship, and and touring cars there. So there, there was a hell of a lot going on. And I imagine he, he was quite busy. But how, how did he actually fare in terms of uh, results? Yeah, actually, in 92, he did all three championships. I think he was probably the only uh, European driver who, who did. And he, um, that schedule with all the testing as well was completely manic. He was in a car almost every day because they do endless testing for all of those championships as well as uh, the races. Um, in sports cars, he was definitely one of the, the top, top guys. He was really, um, those big, powerful turbo cars were really suited to him. And he became quite a, a big key player in the Saad Toyota team, which was kind of a a sister team but rival team to top toms he he was very very influential in the way the team worked he was very clearly the number one driver ahead of pierre Henri raffanel who'd actually done a bit of formula one with coloni back in the day and later ayer elg uh, 92 was his teammate eddie stepped into the car for a couple of times and then um there were kind of two alpha males in in the car which was 
quite complicated, but I think they both had a lot of respect for each other from their days in Formula Ford and so on. In the Formula 3000, he, he did win a race, which was quite impressive because Mika Salo, for example, was there for years. He never managed to do that. He probably wasn't in, in the best package, but he, he was quick on his day and he got podiums and, as I said, that win. So definitely one of, one of the top guys in a, in a very, very strong group. And also don't forget that he, he was in his early 30s by then. He had tons of experience and he was always very good technically and that helped in Japan as well. Well, it's clear that grounding, as, as we heard from uh, from Valter Lechner earlier, he, he went to technical college, obviously worked as a mechanic, obviously even running his own Formula Ford car at times. So he clearly had a, a good grasp on that kind of thing, which always always helps. Even though he was relatively comfortable, I guess, in Japan, he was presumably earning good money because drivers did it at that time. Uh, he was still determined to get into Formula One, wasn't he? he there, there'd been some flirtation with getting a Jordan seat in 91, possibility of putting together a package, but that went to Bertrand Gasho in the end, but then he did get that big break with, with Nick Worth's fledgling Simtech team in, in 1994. As I understand it, the deal was for the first five or six races, half a million dollars, stumped up for by Barbara Bellau, who, as I understand it, was basically Roland's wealthy neighbour in Monaco. It doesn't seem like a huge amount is is known about her, but, but she basically paid for it. Yeah, I think, um, as you'll hear later on, by the end of 93, he kind of Ran out of, uh, run out of enthusiasm a little bit for Japan. There was no longer a Group C, local Group C championship there, so it was a bit less appealing. And uh, I guess the clock was ticking. He'd done a, a champ car test at one stage and had thought about America. He was obviously thinking, well, if I'm ever going to get into Formula One, it's got to happen soon. And that winter, end of 93, he, he started looking. And that's where Burkhardt Hummel comes back into the picture again. I mean, I, he hadn't um, had a lot to do with Roland over the last few years. He'd always been a sort of mate and an unofficial advisor. They worked on a handshake. But Burkhardt had come into contact with Nick Worth through Max Mosley, who was um, obviously associated with the Simtech team. And Burkhardt said to Nick, I, I know this Austrian guy, Ratzenberger, you should have a look at him. Obviously, there were lots of drivers circulating around looking for that second Simtech seat alongside David Brabham. Some had money, some had promises of money. Roland basically was the first guy to actually put some money on the table. And yes, it came from this uh, wealthy German lady who was based in Monaco, Barbara Bellow. And that led to the, the Barbara MC stickers on the on the Simtech. I guess the opportunity came late, but at, at 33, and, and the driver probably at at his peak it was a it was an interesting opportunity and the Simtech team actually didn't produce a, a bad car all things all things considered they they had a, a quicker car than the than the Pacific team which had obviously stepped up from Formula 3000 with a with a great pedigree uh let's let's hear from Burkhard Hummel an interview you did with him a while ago over the over the phone where he he gives us his impression of Ratzenberger and what he was like to to deal with on the beginning on he was a uh nice friendly but straight looking forward so he, he i think he knows that he was not the the biggest talent but he was a hard worker i think that is the roland uh, roland knows for himself uh, he was a, a a driver with a with a big potential of learning but i think the most important thing on roland was he has a a uh, fantastic technical understanding. That what is was my feeling. Yeah, uh, he the answers about a 
car, uh, a setup, all these things. Uh, when you ask his engineers, you say it was incredible about his his answers, uh, like a setup, like a car. The second thing is his handshake qualities. You don't need a contact. He's a, a handshake quality, uh, it's incredible. And And also, he was always a gentleman. He was friendly, never arrogant. I think he pays you the last penny. He gives you the last penny. He doesn't have one, but uh, he gives you the last. Yeah, this was this was really impressive about him. Well, obviously, it was a, it was a really tough start for for Ratzenberger. He didn't qualify into Lagos. The various problems there did got it on the grid for the Pacific Grand Prix at, at Aida. But I, I guess the fact that he had at least had made it to Formula One and he was starting to get to grips with the car must have been quite a big deal for him. So good for you to see uh, your 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 old friend. Making making that progress. Yeah, no, it was um, fantastic, really. And obviously, Eddie Irvine had done Suzuka and Adelaide at the end of '93. Heinz Alfredson, who'd raced in Japan, had tested for Sauber that summer and then got a, a race drive for '94. So these guys are all moving up, and um, Ronan was so determined to to make it as well. I mean, so many guys that he'd raced against on the way up. And beaten quite often, had already made it to Formula One. I mean, he used to bang wheels with Bertrand Gachot in Formula Ford in Europe. And other guys subsequently came along after him and made it. And he, he was definitely good, good enough to be there. And also, you've got to remember the, the pressure involved with those two new teams coming in, Simtech and Pacific, knowing that every race, two cars were not going to qualify. It's hard to imagine now. I mean, if you consider a few years ago when we had Mano or, or Mauricio racing against Catering. Can you imagine if uh, every race two of those guys weren't going to make it, how much uh, pressure the drivers would be under? And that's what the situation was at the start of 94. He hadn't made it in Brazil because the car was too new. He had lots of problems. Um, he hardly got any practice time. He had made it in Aida, which was a track he, he didn't really know because we didn't have a Japanese Formula 3000 race there. But it was kind of appropriate that he um, actually got to make his one and only start in Japan. And then going to Imola, he was obviously desperate to qualify again. He had a contract for the first five races. Some of those other drivers that had been talking to Simtech during the winter were starting to get their money together. They were obviously knocking on the door. So he had to keep doing the job to impress the team and to keep those uh, sponsors uh, behind him. So making the, the grid at Imola was um, absolutely imperative. Well, actually, at Imola, there seemed to be a little bit of a breakthrough with the car because he'd been struggling, I think, with, with braking problems and he was struggling particularly in the, the slower corners, pretty quick in the, the, the faster corners, though. But, but I think David Brabham tried his car at Imola on the Friday and confirmed, yeah, there is, there is a problem with the brakes. So they'd, they'd changed some things, sorted it out. And it sounds like when he went into to qualifying, second qualifying on, on the Saturday when the accident happened, it, it, he was really starting to, to get to grips with things. Yeah, that uh, slow corner thing is something I've, I've discussed with Nick Worth. And it, for a guy that was uh, such a quick driver to be struggling in the slow corners was, was ironic. But again, it's, it's, it's a typical thing with brakes and confidence and all the rest of it. And I think by that Saturday in, um, in Imola, he was much happier. They, they'd made some changes. And in that, that morning session, he again, yeah, she said he was starting to make progress. So I, I guess he was full of confidence uh, going into qualifying. Let's quickly hear from his then teammate at Simtech, David Brabham, about his impressions of of Ratzenberger and and how well he might have done in Formula One had he had he continued. For sure, he would have grown as a driver in that environment if he'd have been able to continue. 
um, you know, where he would have got to, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, um, maybe it's because I, I didn't know him well enough before that. But, you know, clearly he was more than capable uh, of doing a good job. You know, how far he would have developed as a driver. Yeah. I mean, we unfortunately, we never got the opportunity to say no, but... You know, he was, he was, he was no, um, you know, so he was not a rented driver, yeah. but, you know, that's, he, he was a proper, he was a proper driver. And, yeah. and, you know, certainly after he got his new brakes and he started to get more confidence with the thing, you know, you, you could see he made good progress and he was, he was there and you thought, great, you know, it's, there's some good competition within the, within the team. Um, because, you know, it was, it was tough to get off the bottom of the grid, you know. Um, in those days, um, but unfortunately, we never we never got the opportunity to to see how well he could progress. Well, and then Adam, of course, it all came to an end. Twenty two minutes into qualifying on Saturday, when Ratzenberger had this horrific crash at 190 miles an hour in the the Villeneuve right hand kink into the into the wall, heavily, absolute tragedy. And and it was the it was when the Imola weekend, which had already started badly with the Rubens Barrichello crash on the Friday. Uh, just just turned to a nightmare and then just just got worse from there but uh yeah a, a horrible way for his his formula 1 dream to to bite him i guess yeah i mean just a, an awful weekend wasn't it and um the, the the story with the accident is that the from the data the team saw later that he he had a a bang on the curbs of some kind and then um driving away from that he he jiggled the steering wheel from left to right um, either to try and get rid of some gravel or just to check that everything was okay. Um, and of course he didn't come in, check the car at the end of that lap. But then, you know, how often in the past have we seen people, uh, have incidents and they carry on or banging wheels in races and they carry on. Um, and sometimes it's not obvious immediately that you've got some damage that, that, that might be a bit of a problem. And that, that's obviously what happened to him once he got up to speed. The front wing basically uh, came off, got under the front of the car, and, not, and he had no ch- no chance of getting around that corner. Yeah, horrendous, horrendous scenes for anyone uh, watching the, the qualifying broadcast broadcast live, wasn't it? And just uh, a real shock for Formula One because it had been, I think, twelve years since a driver had lost their life on a on a Grand Prix weekend. Elio D'Angelis had lost his life in '86 in a in a testing crash, but it, it it kind of moved into a generation where this this wasn't expected to happen. Exactly. We hadn't seen anything like that for a long time. And also the fact that by 94 qualifying was live on Eurosport and all the rest of it. And the cameras were lingering on the car. So, you know, thousands of people were seeing what was going on. It just made it that much more shocking and horrific, really. Yeah, very, very much. So, and immediately, actually, we always talk about the impacts of of the the death of Ayrton Senna a day later in terms of safety. But actually, that process did start with Ratzenberger, the driver's as I understand it, had basically agreed to reform the Grand Prix Drivers Association. Senna was going to be very engaged with that. So actually Ratzenberger had played played his part in starting off this safety drive that over the years has has saved so many drivers from uh, from serious injury or worse. Yeah, I guess that that's his legacy in a way, isn't it? That he's associated with that weekend and the accident to Senna and the, and the drive for safety that basically kicked off in the weeks and months after him, although there were other accidents as well. Obviously, Carl Wendinger at Monaco, uh, one of the main ones. Pedro Lamy had a big crash at Silverstone in testing not long afterwards. 
and led by Max Mosley with Sid Watkins and Charlie Whiting and the support of the teams, there was obviously this push for safety that, that continues to this day. Yeah, very much so. And talk about uh, remembering him. Obviously, we were in Baku for the Azerbaijan Grand Prix a few days ago and you had the, the Ratzenberger helmets, uh, helmet badge on, uh, I think, on race day, didn't you? So to, just, just as a gentle reminder of, uh, of Ratzenberger. Yeah, I figured um, we were a couple of days before the anniversary and we weren't going to be in a race weekend on April the 30th or May the 1st. So, yeah, I thought I'd wear that badge. And it, it was nice that weekend to catch up as well with Marco Epicello, who's one of the guys who, who raced in Japan and knew Roland very well. Hadn't seen him for about 15 years. He's now working for a, a helmet company supplying Valtteri Bottas. So um, bumping into him was a reminder of uh, Japan and uh, all those uh, fun times we had with Roland. Yeah, very much so. Well, there's still a lot of people in the Formula One paddock who, uh, who, who are from that time and raced against Roland or knew him. So uh, he, he is still still very well remembered, certainly more remembered than uh, than someone who had such a brief Grand Prix career normally normally would be. And I, I guess it was it was at least good that he did make it to, to F1. He did get a Grand Prix start in Aida in the Pacific Grand Prix. So I guess in the grand scheme of things, he did achieve that ambition as, as improbable as it is. And I guess that's testament to the determination he had and the fact that he, he was, as we've heard from some of those who raced against him, a very, a very, very capable driver. Yeah, exactly. And the, the fact that he made it without any family support, um, his parents were not keen on him racing and his dad was a, a civil servant. He wasn't a multi-millionaire or billionaire like a lot of the fathers we see these days and Roland had to do it all on his own and um, you know he didn't start karting when he was five or six he he had to sort of earn a living as a mechanic in a racing school and beg steal and borrow and and find enough money to go racing Um, and he did it the hard way and uh, he he did really work on it that was one of the things that uh, got him there in the end he was very very good at dealing with the media, dealing with sponsors. Um, it was a full-time job for him out of the car, basically managing his own career. And um, you just don't really see people like that anymore. It's just just not the way it's done, is it? Yeah, very true. No, we expect to see support teams taking care of that so they can concentrate on their driving. But yeah, Ratzenberger, a driver from a from a different era. And, and I guess had he been able to continue with, with Simtech a little bit longer, he was starting to get on top of the car and I'm sure he'd, he'd made good progress and, and showed everyone what he could do. Well, uh, to, to finish off, because we don't often hear from, uh, hear, there's not much video footage of Roland Ratzenberger being interviewed, you know, a, a driver today, uh, there's there's constant, you search for YouTube, there's endless interviews, but but not so much with Ratzenberger. So uh, you've dug through your archives and found an interview with, with Roland Ratzenberger from the, the Japanese 3000 finale at Suzuka in in 93 so that's just before he landed that f1 break so can you just set the scene in terms of where he was at the end of, of that season to to tee up the clip yeah i just um i've got boxes and boxes of these little micro cassettes that i, I used for about 20 years until they invented the digital recorder and um on there i've got all kinds of interviews and sound bites and um, bits and pieces of uh, people i've come across over the years and uh, yeah just digging through through them today I found a cassette that was labelled Suzuka 93 so I had a listen and lo and behold there was this uh, soundbite with uh, Roland that would have been the last uh, Formula 2000 race of 1993 um, just after Eddie Irvine had made his debut in um, Suzuka with Jordan and at that point Roland didn't have any deals for 94 he was looking around uh, he doesn't actually mention it in the 
interview, but I guess he'd, he'd started at, to look at Formula One, but it probably seemed like a, a long way away at that stage. But it's clear that he's 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 looking to move 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 onwards and upwards away from Japan. Yeah, very much so. And of course, uh, he's only a few months away from finally making his, his Grand Prix debut. Obviously, it's not it's not brilliant quality the the recording because it was never kind of intended for broadcast. But I think it's it's good to have a few minutes just to get a bit of a feel for for Roland Ratzenberger uh, in his own words. So uh, here it is. Season was was quite a disappointment because obviously after last year we ended on a high note and everything was going well. I mean. I think we had realistic uh, chances to, to be the championship, you know, basically on paper. And, but then the first problem was that we sold the 92 car, which was tactically, tactically not very clever. And we had to start with the 93, which I must say I was a bit too positive at the beginning. I thought now we can, we can cure the problems of the car fairly quickly which was not the case. So we basically lost three races at the beginning of the season, messing around with the 93. And still now, uh, the car, although we, we put the 92 rear end on it, the car is not very consistent. I mean, the setup has been a problem all year, especially when we have a lot of grip. When there's not much grip like yesterday, the car handles quite well. But if I have a lot of grip, on the circuit and we always have a setup problem, always have a handling problem. So we never really pinpoint that why that is. You only have one really good race, uh, Fuji, right? Yeah, Fuji, yeah. I mean, I actually, I had, not looking at the results, I had a couple of very good races, also at Suzuka, where I came through like from 15, 16 to finish 6, which from my point of view were really good races. Uh, but the results obviously don't tell that. And the problem has been qualifying this year because out of the 10 sessions, I had two clear laps all year. Which meaning clear lap, I still had to overtake some cars, but... Uh, yeah. At the moment, I'm only doing Le Mans with start. Yeah. Possibly, yeah. I mean, Jeff is, I think, about 90% tomorrow, depends on what Nova does. Yeah, with the group singer. They still playing the Yeah, yeah, they're still building that. The MCA, they call it, which is a. No, not to Le Mans. It's gonna race after Le Mans, probably. And apart from that, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at all kinds of things at the moment. And the sponsorship situation is a bit difficult at the moment. Nobody knows what's going to happen. So, I think so. I mean, I, I have had some talks with teams and nothing signed, but I think there's a reasonable good chance that I can stay with a good team in Japanese results. Well, great to hear a little bit of, of Ratzenberg himself. Now, so just to, to finish off, Adam. Just on a personal level, what what do you remember about about Roland Ratzenberger from your from your time of uh, uh, being genuinely friends with him and someone who had a big impact on your life? Yeah, just someone who was a really uh, charming, funny, intelligent, articulate guy. He's, he always had a, a big smile. As I said before, he was uh, good with media. He was good with sponsors. He was very very good with the ladies. He was a bit of a a legend, really. Um, 
He was even married very briefly at the end of the 91 season, but it was uh, all over before the start of the 92 season, which is quite amazing. He tended to sort of uh, fall in love quite spectacularly and uh, very fast at some points. But uh, yeah, a very charming, good-looking, fun guy to be around. Well, just playing a bit of a game of what if, what, what do you think? Would have would have become of Roland had he had he uh, survived that that Imola weekend. Obviously, his grasp on a Grand Prix seat financially was was tenuous, but you know we know he'd have got better. And then, what what do you think he'd be doing in the subsequent years? And what would he be doing today? Yeah, we'll never know what might have happened to him in Formula One. It's obvious that it would have depended very much on money. But as I said, he was pretty good at finding sponsors. Maybe he would have uh, managed to keep the money coming in. Maybe he could have stepped up to somewhere like. Tyrrell in 95 and he, he could have had a at least a decent Grand Prix career for a few years but if that hadn't worked out I'm absolutely sure he would have uh, gone back to touring cars sports cars at some stage I mean the accident was 25 years ago and um, if he'd lived he would only have been 58 now so I'm sure he would have gone on racing at quite a high level for 10, 15, 20 years and he might even still be doing it and I think if he'd stopped racing he would definitely have found a, a job somewhere in motorsport. If you think of the, the power and influence of the, the Austrian mafia in motor racing, uh, especially at Formula One level, from Jochen Rint onwards, we've had Helmut Marko, Nicky Lauda, Gerhard Berger, Alex Wurtz, uh, people like that, who've obviously uh, played quite significant roles, and other people like um, Toto Wolff, who, who, who weren't successful racing drivers, I'm sure Roland would have been working in some capacity and possibly um, using those connections with uh, Japan as well, with, with somebody like Toyota. And I think of him in some ways as a bit of a combination of, of uh, Wurtz and Berger. Um, he had a bit of a sort of Wurtz sort of ambition and sort of application and then a, a sort of Berger cheeky charm and uh, and so on. And uh, I think that it was quite a, a powerful combination and it, it worked pretty well for him. Thanks very much, Adam Cooper, for your for your reflections on uh, on Roland Ratzenberg. It's been great to hear from somebody who knew him so well. And I'd recommend if anyone would like to head to autosport.com, there's uh, plenty of news from the world of motorsport, Formula One. I'll check our plus subscriber area for in-depth articles from the world's best motorsport journalists, including, of course, Adam Cooper himself. And there's plenty of coverage of uh, and content based on Ayrton Senna, of course, on the, the 25th anniversary of his death in, in that same weekend. Check out sister titles, motorsport.com, F1 Racing Magazine out monthly, and Motorsport News out every Wednesday. And if you fancy a flutter, download the Pit Stop Betting app. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music.
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.